Yay, Michael. <laughs> so there are probably two things that are apparent from the little exercise we just did. One is that I'm an elementary school teacher, right? <laughs> the other is that this is a teaching on John the Baptist, right? And I think it's, when I looked at the list of teachings for this weekend, I thought, this is kind of strange. We have spiritual formation and the soul and life and death and love and John the Baptist. <laughs> you know, one of these topics is not like the other, it seems. <laughs> so, so why? why? Why would we take time to look at a specific character? And the answer to that question is that when we are... Um, when we are pursuing spiritual formation, we need concrete examples. We need to know what does holiness look like in the Old Testament prophets? What does love look like in a 20th century nun? What does courage look like for missionaries? How do you be a saint if you're a queen of a country? What about farmers? You know, we, we need concrete examples. And so we study we study the lives of the saints, um, and by that, they, saints, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Jewish, we study the lives of holy men and women. And I believe there is probably no more important character for Christians to study than John the Baptist. And I believe that's important for two reasons. One is that we still need the message of John the Baptist. The message of John the Baptist is critical for each one of us. The second is that we have the same call as John the Baptist, and that's to prepare the way of the Lord. Each of us must prepare the way of the Lord in our own hearts, and we must prepare the way of the Lord for others. We must prepare the way of the Lord for the coming of the King. Everything we do in our lives is ordered towards the coming. So if we preach, it is to let people know there's a king coming. This is good news, right? If we heal the sick, it's because the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And in the kingdom of heaven, there is no sickness. There is no darkness at all in the kingdom of heaven. If, you know, if we give to the poor, it's because the king of heaven is compassionate and merciful and just. Does that make sense? Everything we do, every generation has looked for the coming of Christ. And the coming of Christ is the culmination of our faith. There is no peace in the Middle East unless the Prince of Peace comes to earth. There is no, there is no right judgment for what happened to Hannah's parents until Jesus comes and makes judgment. That's got, to be, that's got to be settled. That's an account that has to be settled. Does that make sense? It's, we just can't gloss over that. But there's only one person that can make it right. The very earth is tainted with our sin. That creation is not what it was, and it's not what it will be. Creation is full of, of, of violence and death and pollution, and the king is coming to make that right. So every great move of God um, has been led by men and women who have this burning desire to see Jesus come, right? Many of them have a sense of urgency that Christ is coming. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The literal second return of Jesus is coming has marked 
the, the theology, the beliefs, the motivation of many of, of these missionaries, preachers, prophets. But even though they never actually saw Jesus come to stand on earth, they saw the kingdom of heaven come to earth in little ways, in small ways. Does that make sense? And so their motivation was right because they were preparing the way of the Lord. Does that make sense? So when we talk about preparing the way of the Lord, yes, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, but we're also talking about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now, in our hearts, in our friends, in the people who haven't heard. So, there's preparation required for the coming of a king, right? There's preparation required for the coming of a president. When a president goes someplace, the secret service is all over it before the president comes. But how much more so the king of all the earth? And if, if Jesus needed a devoted prophet to come before his coming the first time, when he came in meekness and when he came in gentleness... He needs that same voice again when he's coming in judgment, right? You know, I would like, I would like to read just a little bit um, from Malachi. Could I, Jason, do you have your Bible? Jenny, do you have a Bible? Jason, if you could read like the first four verses of Malachi chapter 3. And then Jenny, if you would read all of Malachi chapter 4. It's a short chapter. It's not, it's not long. Verse 3 or 4, you'll know. Yeah. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's silver. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. In Jenny chapter 4. Parents, 
to look after their children and children to look up to their parents. If they refuse, I'll come and put the land under a curse. Those are prophecies about John the Baptist. And I believe at midday prayer, you read, um, you read Zechariah's song, his prophecy. So he quotes Malachi when John the Baptist is born. This comes, this, this day has come. And, and there are going to be two things that John the Baptist does. He has two messages. They're very, very simple. One is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And his other, his other mission was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. That's it. Two jobs. So Matthew 3, which we read today, also says the people poured out of Jerusalem and Judea to hear John and see him in action. And there at the river, river Jordan, they came to confess their sins and they were baptized into new life. There was an anointing on John the Baptist that drew people. And it drew people to confess their sins. Now, this word confess your sins, this is an action word. This is not, oh, I feel, I realize that I have done things wrong. This is not an internal conviction. This is an outward action. People are speaking out their sins. And so why are they doing this? People don't come out to the desert to feel guilty. Did you know that? <laughs> they don't do that. You know, that's, that feeling that you get when, um, when you get a, a telemarketer calling and telling you about the starving children, that feeling, that's not what they went to the desert to get. You know? <laughs> the feeling that you get when you go to the dentist and they say, oh, if you'd floss your teeth, you wouldn't have these cavities. No. <laughs> that is not what people were experiencing in the desert. They were drawn. And I, I think that we sometimes we see confession and repentance as a fearful thing. And, and there is there's something very weighty and something very serious about it. But people would not go out to the desert to seek this if it was not giving them life. There was life happening out in the desert. There was something exciting happening. There was something people were going back, you've got to come hear this man. You know, as the, the woman in the well, you've got to come hear this man. He told me everything I ever did. And the things that that woman had done were somewhat shameful. But when Jesus told her, it did not cause shame, it caused life. It caused life, it caused energy. These people were encountering God in the desert, and what I think was happening is they were coming in touch with their soul. John the Baptist had a soul. John the Baptist, he lived in the presence of God. He knew God, and when people saw John the Baptist, they experienced the Holy Spirit, and something in their soul was awakened. And they said, that's what I was created for. I was created to have communion with God, and there's something in me that is keeping me from that, and I don't want this anymore. I, you know, we, we have the law of God. I, I have sinned. I want the sin out of me because I want to live like that. And it was an exciting thing. It wasn't a guilt thing. It wasn't heavy. It was life-giving. Does that make sense? You know, the people um, coming out and confessing their sins in the desert, they, they didn't have a theology that John the Baptist was a priest forgiving their sins. That's not what was going on. This was a spontaneous move of the Holy Spirit. But it had precedent. Something like this happened in Nineveh when Jonah preached. And Jonah didn't have the, the, the kind of anointing that John the Baptist did, but parts were turned, and something happened in Nineveh. 
Something happened with David when he confessed his sins and repented. He wrote these beautiful psalms. So, so there, was, there was precedent. There was precedent in, in Jewish history. There's precedent in our hist- Christian history. Public confession of sin has marked great revivals. It marked um, the, the, the ministry of Savonarola, who was a, a Catholic reformer, pre-Luther, preached in Florence believed that God was coming, preached the coming of the king. People came out, they burned their, their um, if you can imagine, probably art history professors are horrified at this part of history because these Florentines during the de Medici era were bringing out these priceless treasures that were idols to them and burning them. <laughs> yeah, millions of dollars up in smoke in Florence then because people were, they were confessing their sins of idolatry and they were repenting. Um, the same thing happened in the Great Awakening. The same thing happened when John Knox preached in, in Scotland. There was public confession of sin. And so why, why are moves of God marked by confession? I believe it's to prepare the way of the Lord. I, it's not... Um, God does, has no interest in publicly humiliating us. That's not his heart at all. But as the song says, in him there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. The night and the day are both alike to him. And we cannot have intimacy with that kind of brightness when we love sin. We just can't do it. Um, it it's impossible. And so for God to be intimate with us, he has to deal with our sin. We can only be as intimate with God as we are willing to let him deal with our sin. Does that make sense? That, that's, 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 the, that's the degree to which we can go intimate with God. And so that's why public confession has marked these great moves of God. People, people want him to say, I, I want you more than I want my sin. I want you, and I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. So why is it important to verbalize our sin and not just have internal conviction? You know, I, I don't really know the full answer to that. But, um, but there's some beautiful words that David wrote in Psalm, 20, Psalm 32. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. Have you felt the hand of God heavy on you? I have felt the hand of God heavy. I'm so thankful for the heavy hand of God because it is so uncomfortable <laughs> that it will drive you to confession. <laughs> the sap in me dried up. But when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I stopped concealing my guilt, I said, I will confess my offenses to Adonai, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm not entirely certain why verbalizing our sin sets us free, but um, I know it does. I know that what doesn't work is trying harder. Trying harder doesn't work. Hiding doesn't work. Vowing to get better doesn't work. That's just like squeezing your hands. It's like squeezing your hand and trying to hide it. It will, it will ooze through. And that, I know that's a, it's a very simple illustration that we did. I did it years ago, but I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten it. Because there are sins that we think are totally internal. There are sins that we think affect only us. But it's not true. It's not true. It leaks out. People can see it. People can see that we're hiding something. People can see the fear in us. 
At the very least, we have to keep our hands closed and we can't be intimate. At the very least, we can't do that. And so every sin will affect your relationship. There is nothing you can hide. It will come out. I have a a sweet memory of Peggy. Um, The year I became Catholic, we had a penance service. Peggy had just turned seven years old. And the way this penance service worked is that you wrote down your sins and you gave them to the priest and the priest read them and he burned them and blessed you and you walked off. Peggy was seven years old and I don't know um, if she could write anything intelligible. I, I sure wasn't going to ask if she wanted me to write her sins down for her. So I let her scribble whatever she could scribble on her little piece of paper. And little seven-year-old Peggy walked up to the priest and she gave him her little paper. He took it, he burned it, and this is what Peggy did. Like that. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was totally beautiful. I came to confession before I came here. And that's what I felt like. You know, that's what I felt like. I felt like a little bird. I just thought, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's a mystery. But there's something really freeing about it. One thing that, one thing I have experienced as a Catholic is the, is the blessing of the sacrament of confession. And one thing that surprised me about the sacrament of confession is that when I am sitting there naming my sins, they suddenly feel much heavier than I thought they were. And that sounds unpleasant, but it's, it's, um, it's good. There's something that's really good. I, I think somehow we can't really feel the freedom of our sins until we feel the weight of them in some ways. And, and if we try to justify them in our mind, if we try to think, well, it's because of this or because of that, which you can't do in confession, by the way. You can't say, well, I was unkind to my husband, but you don't get by with that. <laughs> that's not allowed. Um, when, you just, when you just say it for what it is, raw, it's just you feel the weight of it. And my first experience with that was, was shortly after I became Catholic. And I, um, I, was, I, was, I was a little bit worried about my first confession. Like, how is it going to be like? When am I going to go? So shortly um, afterwards, I, I found myself in a situation where I, um, I said something to my husband that was about 90% true. <laughs> the basic con- like on the truth meters like in the statesman it was like it was way over to the you know it, w- it was almost true but I sort of manipulated the circumstance I mean I put a little spin on it um, so that he would not be mad at me <laughs> and and I thought okay I can I can say that in confession and so I went to confession I kind of told the story and the priest looked at me and said so Amy why did you lie to your husband and I was like oh that sounds bad <laughs> And, and then I got mad. I said, if I knew why I lied to my husband, I wouldn't be here. I was like, yes, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. Understanding the, the, emotional, the emotional fuel of our sins goes a long way to helping us deal with them. But I, I, um, he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk your dog. I want you to go on a walk, and I want you to ask God why you lied to your husband. And I, I blew it off. Like, I don't know why. I don't know why. I can't know that answer. So I didn't do it. But I didn't tell another lie for 
two years because because just the weight of that I didn't want to go back to confession <laughs> and and th- that fear was enough to keep me clean for two years and then <laughs> And then two years later, I found myself in a situation very similar. And it wasn't even, I didn't even say anything. I just, I just realized this, this, this temptation to hide the truth is, is strong. It's coming up. And, and then I felt the Lord say, Amy, why is that? Why are you tempted to lie? And I didn't know what to say. So he said, I'll tell you why. <laughs> He said, it's because you fear what other people think of you more than you fear what I think of you. Ouch. <laughs> that, that hurts. But, but when I heard my father say that, I was able to repent. I was able to repent. Like, God, I don't want to be afraid of what other people think of me. I want to fear only what you think of me. That's what I want. And, and something changed in me that day. Something, something changed. I don't have, I won't say that I don't have a fear of men. I, you know, it's something we all struggle with. I still struggle with that. But I have a healthy fear of God. I have a healthy fear of God that outweighs that. And so the temptation is gone. Not, not just the habit, but the temptation. Like George was saying, it's not that I can't fall there again. I, I could. But something fundamentally in my, in my soul has changed. And I was thinking about that this morning, and I realized that's the difference between conviction and shame. Shame will lead you to more sin. Shame will lead you to to cover things up. Conviction leads you to repentance. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's half the message of John the Baptist. As repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Confess your sins. What's the other half of John the Baptist's role? What was the other half? Mm-hmm. So I get the repentance thing. I get that. And I see that in the ministry of John the Baptist. It's harder for me to see the fathers and son thing in the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's probably because I just wasn't there. <laughs> But, but it's recorded in scripture that this is really important. This is an important part of his ministry. So as I began to think about this, I said, like, God, why? why? Why is this so important? And one thing I realized is the great moves of God are not only heralded by confession of sin and repentance. Um, in the Bible, the great moves of God are heralded by the announcement of the birth of a child. Right? <coughs> So Adam and Eve fall in sin. What's the solution? Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. That's the solution. What's the promise to Abraham? Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed by you, and so I'm going to give you a a son. Right? So Israel goes, oh, Israel is sold into slavery. Israel is sold into slavery. And, well, they get into slavery. Anyway, they're in Egypt. And a child is born. And his mother sees that he is beautiful. And she hides him. Right? Because she sees he's beautiful. He is the hope. He's the hope of their salvation. 
Israel moves out of Egypt. And they're moved into the promised land. They stop following the Lord. They're oppressed by the Philistines. An angel appears to Manoah and his wife and says, I'm going to send you a child, a son, who will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. The Lord's anointing came on Samuel when he was a little boy. The anointing came on David when he was a very young man. And both of them had to wait decades. There were decades in between the Lord's call and the fulfillment of that call in their life. There's this waiting. The birth of Jesus was foretold. It was foretold from the beginning. It was foretold from Genesis. It was foretold in the prophets, and it was told to Mary. It was told to Joseph. There's a child. (laughs) The birth of John the Baptist was foretold. So it seems that when God plans a great work of salvation or deliverance, he chooses to begin with a child. And so why does he begin with a child? And it's not just the child. He begins by telling the parents about the child, right? It's not just the child. It's the parents and then the child. I think one reason... (laughs) There's a child... When we look to the next generation for a work of salvation, for a work of deliverance, it keeps us from selfish ambition, right? It keeps us from thinking it's all about us. It causes us to give sacrificially into the next generation. Our hopes rest on their children. They don't rest on us. We get our eyes off ourselves and we invest in the next generation. And I think that that is really, really crucial. Because if we cannot love our children more than ourselves, how are we going to live in the mystical body of Christ? How are we going to do what Paul says? Prefer one another. Prefer one another. How are we going to do that if we can't do it with our children? Does that make sense? When the hearts of the fathers are turned to the children, we more closely express the relationship that God wants to have with his people. God has chosen to call himself our father. So when the father-child, when the mother-child relationship is broken, we have a very hard time relating to God. And so if God is going to move and love us like he wants to, the hearts of the fathers need to be turned to the children so the children can receive God as a loving father. Jason was telling me about this in Turkey. He said this is a huge problem in Turkey because the Turks don't like their fathers. And so if God calls himself a father, that's not so appealing, right? But if the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the mothers torn towards their children, then the children will be softer towards God. We prepare the way of the Lord by repenting and by mending our parent-child relationships. And when... We as fathers and mothers love our children well, then we enable our children to obey the commandments, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother is a fascinating commandment. It's the fourth commandment um, by, by the numbering I grew up with. The first three commandments have to do with revering God. They have to do with treating God as holy. Have, have no other gods before me. Have no idols. Keep the Sabbath because it's holy to me. First three are all about God. The last six are all about loving your neighbor. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. 
And there's one commandment right there in the middle. It's about one specific person, your father or two. Honor your father and your mother. It's the only command that applies to a specific person. And I believe it's because it's a transitional command in some ways. Because God, because our our parents are the ones um, who model God's love to us. And our parents are the one who teaches us how to live in society, in community. And so it's a relationship that goes both ways. It goes up to God and it goes out to people. When children's hearts are turned towards their parents, they honor the way God has ordered humanity. George talked about this a little bit. There's absolutely nothing about our physical being, very little about our emotional or mental makeup that we did not receive from our parents. There's very little. Yeah. And so when we despise our father and mother, when we treat them with contempt, we are really having contempt on ourselves in a lot of ways. And in fact, one thing I learned while studying for this is that Cursing your father and mother in Old Testament law is a capital offense. You're stoned for that. It's, it's a big deal. So one time I remember, I remember looking at Peggy and Noah when they were very little. And I had this question in my head. I, said, I was just thinking, what about Peggy? What about Noah is is God's call on their life. What, what about them is God's gifting? And what is just me and Thomas? What is just nurture? What is just genetics? And what's uniquely God? And I felt God interrupt my thoughts. I wasn't praying. I wasn't asking God. But he, he decided to, to um, jump in on the conversation anyway. <laughs> and he said, Amy, you don't get it at all. He said, I need genetics. It is my good will, it is my pleasure that Peggy and Noah are like their parents. I want it that way. It doesn't mean they don't have a specific call. It doesn't mean they don't have gifts that are uniquely theirs. But it means that, that we are part of a line. We are, part of, we are one of those families under heaven um, who derives its name from the Father. We're one of those families. And he has a... Um, a plan for us in the story of salvation. I think the father and children thing is also about the idea of salvation. Salvation is not about me getting to heaven. It's not about you getting to heaven. It's about God's plan for humanity. (laughs) It's about all of us getting to heaven, or it's about heaven coming here. It's all of our story. It's not an individual story. And if we can't get that right in our families, we're not going to get that right on a worldwide scale. Does that make sense? So that was a story about my heart being turned towards my children. I have another story, which has probably surprised me even more. Um, One day I was at Hope Chapel, and I was in worship, and I was totally caught up in worship, and I wasn't thinking about myself at all. I was just thinking about God, how good God is, and I was just happy. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I heard my Heavenly Father say, Amy? Your father used to worship that way. And that part of the way you're made 
is because of the way your father was made. And part of what I love about you, Amy, is what I love about your father. And that was a really huge, huge revelation to me. But in that moment, I just felt the love of God that goes back in time and goes forward in time. And God not only loved my father, he knows my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather. And he, he sees those people in me. You know, he sees what I've gained from them, though I can't see it. But someday in heaven, it's going to be all clear, and, and my family will be there. And, and I'm excited about that. So I would guess that, well, I'm not guessing. Every one of you here has broken fathers and mothers, right? Nobody here has a good, a perfect father or mother. But some of us have fathers and mothers that we either just don't know or circumstances or are just really, really hard to honor. And I think, I think one thing that when we have grace towards our parents, we have to understand that one of the reasons the parent-child relationship is so messed up is because it's so crucial to God's plan. And because it's so crucial to God's plan, the enemy attacks it hard. And so we have to understand that, that we battle against powers and principalities. And so we give grace to our parents that way. But how, how do we cope with this lack? Well, there's inner healing, which George has talked to us before about. That's important. But there are also other ways that God makes up this lack. And, and one of the ways that I've been totally surprised by is God has given me um, people who have, who have loved me as spiritual fathers and mothers, and flesh and blood people, and I am incredibly thankful for them. They have brought tremendous healing in my life. And so I encourage, especially you younger people, Find spiritual fathers and mothers. Find, find people who you can spend time with and who can nurture that place in your soul. You older people, if you don't have children, find spiritual children that you can invest in and nurture. It's important. It's part of the way God has made us. And some of you, I know, um, are going to the mission field. And, and you're going to be sorely lacking in Christian community, and that is going to be a great hardship. So what can you do for spiritual family? One of the huge consolations I've found um, are the saints. I love Corey Tin Boom. Our whole family read The Hiding Place while we were traveling in Europe together. And I feel like she's a friend of mine, you know? Really, better than some friends. <laughs> I love Corey Tin Boom. I love Teresa of Avila. I love Catherine of Siena. I was reading Catherine of Siena um, back in January, and her writing style is very, very different from Dallas Willard's, but I'm reading it like, oh, Dallas Willard stole this from Catherine. <laughs> She's awesome. Catherine is awesome. And, and I am fully convinced that when I get to heaven, Catherine and Teresa are going to be there waiting for me with hugs. And it's like, yeah, I can't wait to see you. They're, they're going to be there. We, we will know each other in some way. I encourage you to read the lives, read biographies, read stories, read writings from great men and women of the faith. 
there are all sorts of them. I mean, they come from all walks of life. They come from all traditions of Christianity. And they are a comfort to us. So it's time for me to wrap up, and I want to remind us of where we started today. So this teaching is about who? John the Baptist. And his two calls were? Repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Okay. I remember very clearly, January of 2010, I was sitting in a room in Antakya, Turkey, and... And I had just witnessed God move in a, a move of reconciliation that was so beautiful that both Thomas and I said, if we died tonight, we would die happy men and women. <laughs> it was beautiful. And, and I remember just sitting around that room and just looking at spiritual fathers and mothers and just thinking, I so much want to be like this. I want to be this kind of person. Um, George and Hannah Miley were there, and I remember saying, when, when I am 70 years old, I want to radiate Christ. I want to live in the presence of God. And, and Jesus showed up unexpectedly again. <laughs> he said, Amy, if that's what you want, go home and invest in your children. And it was a little bit surprising to me, because I liked being in Antakya. <laughs> it was really fun. I liked going to Europe last year. Um, that was a lot of fun, too. And I was kind of thinking that, that this might be a fun way to live, to travel to Europe once a year. I, I could do that. That would be fun. And Thomas and I were thinking, yeah, this is a great season of life. But, but I knew I was supposed to invest in, in my sons. I knew that I needed to step up my efforts in homeschooling. And I had done that, and I was enjoying that, but I was still able to travel. And then God said, let's take it up a notch. <laughs> How about a baby? Want a baby? <laughs> well, my travel plans to Europe got canceled this year. <laughs> They're probably going to get canceled for the next few years. But I know, I know this is where God has me. I know this is God's good pleasure. And I know I'm done because my little one is crying back there. So, thank you, Father. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to repent. I pray that you would heal our father and mother wounds, that you would help us understand how to bring that to you. I pray that you would raise up spiritual fathers and mothers. I pray that we would invest in children. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would come. We pray that you would come to our lives. We pray you would come to unreached peoples. We pray that you would come and stand on the earth again. Amen.